Well, thank you again, worship team, for your faithful leading of us in our time of song. Thank you again to Micah for joining the worship team. And um, I have to say it is a tremendous encouragement for me to see the young people among us joining and continuing the, the giftings that God has given and using them for his glory. So, always tremendously encouraging. But today, as we begin to kind of ease back into the continued flow of life, um, it's important for us to remember that it is not time for us to kind of move on from a time of grief and sorrow. Indeed, there is no clear-cut moving on. To move on is to leave something in the past, to leave something behind us. And there's no leaving the loss of a brother or a sister or a friend or a daughter in the past. And that's something that we will carry with us always. And like I said, we do have to re-engage the fact that the world does continue forward, and the truth of the gospel needs to be carried into that world. It's all too easy for us to get stuck in the cycle of lament. <clears throat> Here I'm not talking about the godly lament that leads us to trust in the God who has proven himself time and time again. What I'm speaking of is the lament of depression and sadness that can so easily become all-consuming and become just as injurious to the soul as the loss that we all have suffered. And don't take this to mean that I believe any one of us should be at this particular place. For some, this might be a struggle of days or weeks or months or even years to come to grips with the loss that we've experienced as a church. But we should be prepared to slowly ease ourselves back in, slowly re-engaging with our community at large, focus turning from the inward contemplation and grieving and recognition of our loss back towards the outwards engagement to which we are called. And in that, this week we'll be re-engaging in our study of the book of Hebrews that I've been working through. Um, we're not going to quite start where we finished off, but fairly close. My last message out of Hebrews was from the early parts of chapter 3. Here we talked about Christ as being better than Moses and serving as a son in the family of God. If you look immediately following that passage in chapter 3, you'll see another one of Hebrews' warning passages. While it is true that we are taught in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is true. But I also mentioned last week how, that how we use the Scriptures is tremendously important. How we engage with them is important. The scriptures I would use in celebrating a baptism will be tremendously different than the scriptures I would use to comfort someone who's lost their job. The scriptures I would use at a baby dedication will be 
night and day different than the scriptures used at a funeral. Perhaps we are not going to dive in yet to the warning passage that precedes the scripture that we're going to look at today. But what we do read today clearly fits with our current situation as a church. So would you pray with me this morning before we get, begin to engage our passage in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, you know the confusing time that we were existing in as a body of believers. We are in a time of pandemic with things being opened and shut and gatherings being allowed and not allowed and we're in a time of loss, having lost a near and dear sister to us in Katrina. We are in a time leading up to Christmas, a time of joy, but also a bittersweet time looking and recognizing maybe we don't get to do the gatherings that often bring so much light and joy at Christmas time. God, there is much to be confused about, much to be concerned about, but all of these things we can lay at your great and holy feet. All of the confusion, all of the darkness and the uncertainty, Lord, none of it is darkness or uncertainty or confusion to you. Lord, you know the plans that you have laid out for your church, and nothing can thwart those plans. And Lord, we can comfort in the fact that your will will be done whether or not we understand how it is being done and your will will be done whether or not people want it to be done. So Lord, we trust our morning and our afternoon and our days and weeks and months ahead to you. And we ask that you would help us to take to heart the various encouragements throughout Scripture that tell us to not, not worry that by worrying, none of us can add a single day to our lives. And we only distract ourselves from the purposes that you have laid out for us. So Lord, we pray that you would give us the confidence in you to not worry. That you would give us the hope and the trust in you that that becomes all-consuming and all else fades into the background. Lord, as we spend time in your word. We ask that it would be used mightily by your Holy Spirit to affect change in our hearts and draw us into the likeness of Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Truly, our passage today gives us a guideline as to how we can get to that place where we are re-engaging with, with our world in the midst of trial and tribulation and sorrow and temptation. How to once again find our lives moving in the direction that God has ordained for us when it seems to us both from our immediate tragic loss and the current issues of COVID and everything else, all things seem to have somewhat ground to, if not a halt, at least a crawl. And today we're going to be in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, and I ask that you would read it with me and understand what I mean when I say that this passage certainly gives us much insight into our lives 
especially as of late. Again, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. As I said, the greater parts of chapter 3 and 4 immediately preceding this passage are warning passages. They warn against falling away from Christ in the face of great tribulation and great trial. And we will go back to those warnings another day. They are tremendously important. But today we look at the motivation and the source of the strength that we have been given to help us maintain our faith in the face of these trials. And conveniently, the inner Baptist in me loves that this passage is split into three nice sections by three nice verses. There's just so much nice about that. But um, I'm going to organize my thoughts around that and starting in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. As in an English lesson, lesson here, sorry for that, but as in most passages that we've looked at in Hebrews, this one starts with a conjunctive adverb. And English was never my forte throughout high school and university. And even now you ask me to just on the spot define the definition between an adjective and an adverb and any other such grammatical construct, I will likely leave much to be desired in my explanation. But thankfully, study does often make up for a lack of intuitive understanding. This conjunctive adverb is a connecting word that ties together two complete thoughts. In our case, these complete thoughts are the warnings of chapter 3 and 4, and this encouragement here at the tail end of chapter 4. We certainly do face all manner of struggles and trials that could easily cause us to walk away from or forsake our faith. We've been keenly reminded of that in the last few weeks and even the last few months. But therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Earlier in Hebrews, we had it drilled into us that Christ is greater than any high priest who has ever been. He is not simply a high priest, but he is the great high priest. He's not simply an earthly man who mediates between us and God. No, he is the God-man who has come from and returned to the throne room of God. It is because he is our great high priest that we can hold fast to our confession in the face of difficulty. The transcendence of Christ gives us a basis for unwavering trust because we know who he is. How great Christ is and how beyond us he is and how much he has done and where he is today allows us to trust that he is worth trusting in. He has proven himself to be who he said he was. 
But him being far beyond and above us and great and wonderful and powerful, you only have to look to the human history even of the feudal system in the Middle Ages, lords and ladies and kings and vassals, to know that in that situation there's a fundamental disconnect between those in whom the average person have put their trust and the average person themselves. There's this disconnect between that king or that lord who is so far above the people and the people themselves. They, the average person will look at that person and go, there's no way they can understand my life. And um, in a tremendous blessing, that is not the case in the Christian faith. Jesus, the Son of God, truly is far beyond and above the average person. He is God and we are not. Christ can rightly say as a member of the Godhead, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But he also says it as one who intimately understands what it means to be a true man. To pull from Hebrews chapter 2, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus shared in flesh and blood so that through his death, he might destroy the power of the one holding death. He became like his brothers and sisters and in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. Because of this, we don't have to worry about his transcendence coming in the way of his ability to act as an intermediary between us and God. Verse 15 of our passage says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. I don't know about you, but I know that throughout the years it has been difficult for the average person, you or I, to trust in the wealthy and the powerful that give so much direction to our lives and our countries whether it's our boss or our politicians or the rich or the famous, it is easy to begin to wonder if they even have any kind of frame of reference to understand our normal average lives. Now, there's a disconnect there between us and the mighty and powerful of our world today. Imagine the greater magnitude of that sentiment between the average, everyday, broken, sinful mankind and the God of the universe. How could the Most High God even begin to act on our behalf and act as a true high priest if his existence was so far removed from those to whom he was meant to be ministering? Thankfully, we can answer that he was indeed one of us. He was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He was made like us in every way. Christ is, to our minds, a confusing mix of transcendent and imminent. Our human minds can't wrap themselves around the idea that not only is Christ fully God, he is also fully man. It's another one of those paradoxes which in our own minds, we likely will not be able to completely reconcile this side of heaven. We just have to trust that it is and trust that God's word is true. And 
we can dive and delve and dig into that as much as we want, and we'll find much joy and encouragement there, but we will never plumb the depths of that paradox. But that truth is also one that is defining of the Christian faith. You cannot believe that Christ was either God or man and claim saving faith according to Scripture. You cannot believe that Christ was one or the other. You must believe that Christ was both for us to have any hope at sharing in the work that Christ did on the cross. If he was only God, then he would have had no claim to stand before God as a viable sacrifice in the place of humankind. And if he were only man, then he had not the power that he claimed that his sacrifice was sufficient for all mankind, past, present, and future, who would believe in him. As we are told in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is our hope. Christ is as he claimed. He is, as the scripture tells us, an appropriate high priest for humanity. He is one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And the sympathy is not the imaginary sympathy of a billionaire, a lifetime billionaire, sympathizing with someone who's living in poverty. It is a sympathy of one who has experienced the same trials and tribulations that we face every day. In every respect, Christ has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Another issue with the idea of Christ being God only and not truly man comes up here. If he were only God, then he could not have been tempted as we are. We are told in Romans 1.13 that God cannot be tempted with evil, evil and he himself tempts no one. If I try to tempt someone who is hungry with a bag of peanuts, but they're anaphylactically allergic to peanuts. There is no real temptation there. They know that they're going to die if they eat those bag of peanuts, so it's no, no temptation. In his divinity, Christ cannot be tempted because God cannot sin. But in his humanity, he was able to be tempted as we are. This verse really does make me appreciate the language scholars because it helps me to uh, clear up this idea of Christ being tempted as we are. This word for tempted can actually be taken two ways. In the negative, where it is temptation towards sin and evil, and to the positive, testing towards growth and righteousness. And both are probably meant here. It's this wrapped up idea of all of the trials we face, both the negative temptation towards things that we should not and the testing that we face at the hands of God that is refining and purifying us. Whether we are being tempted or tested, Christ understands what it is like to be in that position. And it broadens the scope of this passage. Not only has Christ been tempted as we are remaining sinless, but he has also experienced the testing that is common to humanity as well. So whether we are facing trials that draw us to sin, uh, 
or refining testing designed to purify us unto righteousness, Christ understands both. And more than that, he has experienced both. But returning to Christ's transcendence, the author states that while Christ has experienced these things, these temptations, these testings, these trials, he experienced them all and remained. And how we cannot wrap our mind around, but he remained without sin. That is something that no other human being in the history of humans can claim. He remained without sin. So we are to hold fast to our confession of faith in him. Confession of faith that has proclaimed Christ as the Lord of our lives. And we can do that because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who in every respect was tempted as we are. To me, knowing what to do and why I'm able to do it, it's not the same as knowing how to do it. And thankfully, we're not left to wonder as to how we can do it. The first couple of verses tell us what we need to do. Hold fast to that confession. Why? Because Christ is our high priest and he has been there, he has done it. But how? In light of all of these things, we must with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. We are not left to find a way to cling on to the confession about hope in Christ Jesus alone. We cling on by confidently drawing near to the throne of grace. This confidence comes not in our own ability, our own holiness or our own works. We cannot do it ourselves. Our confidence comes in the finished and perfect work of Christ on our behalf. We draw near to the throne of grace by what we in the Reformed camp often call the means of grace. These means of grace are the ministry of the word and prayer and baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are not the only ways in which God shows his grace to his people and reveals himself to them, but they are the ways that he has shown himself ordinarily to use. As you and I rest in the accomplished work of Christ, we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence in the work of Christ and confidence that he will indeed help us in our time of need. Now the mode and the means of that help may differ from what we would expect or they may even differ from what we would like. We come to the throne of grace asking God that he would help us and give us the grace that we need and he answers those prayers but how he answers them may be entirely different from what we expect or intend. As to what I was saying about the means of grace, in order for us to hold fast to our confession, we draw near the throne of grace by the ministry of the word, prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. We have received the grace that is necessary to allow us to press on in the faith. Both the temptations and the tests that we face in this life are common to humanity. 
so common that they are the same temptations and testings and trials that our Lord Jesus Christ faced when he was on this earth. It is telling that in the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that it was to the words of Scripture that Jesus returned. As he is being tempted by Satan himself, he repeatedly returns to God's holy word. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In the face of greatest temptation, it is to the words of Scripture that our Savior appeals, and so it should be for us. In the eternal word of God, we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, whether in temptation or in trial. Every believer should be seeking personally to be immersed in the ministry of the word, both on a personal level through personal study and devotions, and very importantly on a corporate level in the ministry of the word that we find in the church. And we also should be seeking to minister the word one to another regularly, especially as we see our brothers and sisters in the face of times of trial. We should be caring for one another. And even in the marriage relationship, we are told to, as husbands, to wash our wives in the word. We do also have to remember, however, that the scriptures that we use and how we use them must be tr done with tremendous compassion and tenderness as we engage with our brothers and sisters who are in a time of trial or temptation. The misuse of scripture on a brother or a sister in times of trial has been responsible for more wounds than we can imagine, deeper wounds than we can imagine. This is because they come from a brother or a sister and because they often seem irrefutable. If someone comes to me in the midst of my temptation, my trial, my struggle, and quotes scripture at me, and how am I supposed to argue with that? That's, that's scripture. But how it's been used has often been misapplied. I mean, look at Job's situation with his friends. His friends quoted all manner of scripture in their rebukes of their suffering friend, words that in themselves, if you were to just pull out the monologues of Job's friends and just read them in themselves, you would most likely go, man, these guys have this figured out. They know what they're talking about here. But when you take those monologues and apply them to someone in the depth of the greatest suffering that just about any man has ever experienced, all of a sudden their words seem tremendously harsh and hurtful. Not because what they're saying is wrong, but because they're misusing it and not speaking the truth in love and compassion and tenderness to someone who is hurting tremendously. If you were to ask a Sunday school student 
what it might look like to come near to the throne of grace. If you were to ask them what they would do to accomplish that, okay, we're told to do it, how do we get there? I imagine the answers would be pretty well equally split. We all know the typical Sunday school answer is Jesus. But that not being particularly applicable, how do you draw near to the throne of grace? Jesus, well, you're right, but more than that, how do we do it? The next two Sunday school answers that every Sunday school kids know, read your Bible and pray. And that's a good thing. That is something they all should know. And that should be our go-to. Spend time in the ministry of the Word because God has used that as a means of grace. And spend time in prayer. There are times in the midst of our greatest trials and temptations and struggles that even the words of scriptures begin to lose some of their meaning for us. Not that we don't understand it, not that we don't believe that it's true, not that they don't have the same meaning they've always have, but it's very hard for us to see how it can be true in light of our current circumstances. We look at the promises and the encouragements of Scripture and go, yeah, but how? In times such as these, we do need compassionate ministry of the Word, but in my experience anyways, it is in prayer that I've found the greatest comfort and healing as I'm able to do so. Think of these laments that we have heard so much about over the last few weeks. These laments are desperate prayers to God when nothing else seems to make sense. Oh God, why have you forsaken me? Oh God, will you hide your face from me forever? Oh God, where are you when my enemies are surrounding me? These are the prayers of a man who knows the scriptures, who knows the truth. Oh God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that God hasn't forsaken him. Oh God, will you hide your face from me forever? He knows that God will not hide his face from him forever. Oh God, where are you when my enemies surround me? He knows that God is right there. And yet he still asks the question. He still cries out these prayers because although he knows them, he can't feel them. Those promises that he knows to be true just seem to fall flat in the face of our struggle and by coming to God in these lament prayers, those passages that seem to fall flat at the beginning all of a sudden start to find their life again. The passages that are hurtful to us if they're just quoted at us without any compassion or tenderness all of a sudden start to find their meaning again because God has given us the heart to see what their meaning truly is. Indeed, prayer and reading the scriptures are two sides of the same coin. In prayer, we bring our hearts before God, and then in scripture, we hear what God has to say to his people. We'll read our passage again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In the midst of our trials and our temptations, in our struggles and our sorrows, we have a high priest who is both beyond anything we could ever imagine. Our Christ is so great and so glorious and so transcendent above mankind that he is way out there and we are way down here. He's beyond anything we can imagine. But at the same time, our Savior and our God was born as a baby boy in a stable and lived a human life facing the human trials and human temptations and human struggles. He smashed his thumb with a hammer at some point as a carpenter's son. He experienced loss. He's experienced temptation. He experienced all of those things that we struggle with as mankind and he did so without sin. Our Savior gets what it looks like to live in a broken and sinful world while following the commands of his Father. He gets it. He understands our sorrows. He understands our disappointments and it is by his finished work on the cross that we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace. It took the death of Christ on the cross to rend the curtain that hung between man and God. Prior to that, it was the one high priest who got to go before God in the Holy of Holies. And now, by the finished work of Christ, we ourselves get to go before God and run to the throne of grace, seeking the grace and the encouragement that we need to follow him and act in the way that would most glorify him. As we wade through the highs and the lows of human life, we know that we have access through Christ to the mercy and grace we need to help us in our time of need. Let us not hesitate to avail ourselves of the access to God the Father that it took the death of God the Son to achieve. I know in my experience, and I think this is very, very common, particularly in men, that we desperately try to do things ourselves first. This has become very real to me in the last two weeks. I have this gibbled dominant hand that I'm technically not allowed to do anything with. I have been told I am allowed to hold a fork. I've done much more than hold a fork with this hand in the last two weeks. I have tried so hard to do things myself first. All the while, Sherry is standing there yelling at me going, stop using your hand, you're going to break it. Let me help you. No, I can do it. No, I can do it. No, I can do it. Until, ow, no, I can't do it. Please help. It would have been so much easier for me to avail myself of the help that God has provided for me and my wife, but stubborn me insists on trying it myself first and probably to my own detriment. Brothers and sisters, don't be like me. Don't try to do it yourself first. 
Don't try to see whether you can muddle through it without God's help because maybe you can, but nowhere near the same results. And even if you think you've muddled through it without God's help, you haven't muddled through it without God's help because you only are alive because God has ordained that you be alive and has sustained you. So if God's already the one just keeping you alive day to day, why would we try to do anything else without his help? Why would we not avail ourselves of the access that we are given to the throne of grace? Do not attempt to hold fast to the confession of your faith by your own will. We hear over and over again, God will never give you more than you can handle. God will give you so much more than you could ever imagine handling. None of us are strong enough to face the trials and temptations of this world alone. And you can have the best support network in the world. None of us are capable of handling what the world throws at us even as a team. Every single one of us in this room team up to tackle the problems and the issues of this life. Take a look how that works in the halls of government. We have had the UN and the WHO and every other acronym known throwing themselves at figuring out the world's problems since the world has had problems and yet the world still has problems. We individually and we corporately need Christ. We cannot face the trials and temptations of this world, but Christ has faced them and he has emerged victorious. Let us find our strength in him. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we cannot even begin to thank you for what you have done. We cannot deserve the work that Christ has done reconciling us to you. We cannot stand before you on anything that we have done, but we stand before you with confidence based on the work of Christ. Lord, help us to not try to do things ourselves. Lord, don't let us try to just muddle through on our own to try and say that we've done anything. But we can, because we cannot. Even our own good works are as filthy rags until they are purified by the work of Christ. Lord, may we clamor after the means that you have used to show grace to your people. May our Bibles not go another day sitting on a shelf gathering dust, but may we be desperately searching through your word for your truth. And may your Holy Spirit reveal it to us. 
May we not be silent in prayer simply because we haven't done it in so long. May we not be silent in prayer simply because we don't know what to say. May we not be silent in prayer because we think that we are too far gone and that you, are, you have abandoned us. Lord, may we come to you in prayer in all things and at all times. May we pray without ceasing, God. In the little things and in the medium things and in the big things, in all things, let us come before you. Because it is by the work of your Son that we even have the option of doing so. Lord, may you be honored and glorified in the actions of your people. Lord, even as we muddle our way through this strange world that we live in these days, we pray that ever on our hearts and minds would be how we can best honor and glorify you in the situations we are in. God, we trust you that you are God over governments, you are God over diseases, you are God over the high and the low, the mighty and the weak. You are God over the natural and the man-made. All things are under your control and all things work together for your glory and ultimately for the good of those who believe in you. God, we trust you even when we don't understand how. Lord, go with us this week. We thank you for all the ways you've cared for us. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.